He's a poet, educator, publisher. He's written 39 books, many of them winning prestigious awards. My guest today is Kwame Alexander. The Eyes Have It podcast. New perspectives, personal stories, and eyewear journeys. With your host, Jason Kirk. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Eyes Have It podcast. I'm Jason Kirk, founder of Kirk & Kirk. Joining me today is Kwame Alexander, multi-award winning author. His latest book, Why Fathers Cry at Night, is a truly wonderful read. A memoir in love poems, letters, recipes, and remembrances. Kwame Alexander, welcome to the Eyes Have It. Hey, thank you for, for having me, Jason. It's good to see you. It's good to see you too. Tell me about seven-year-old Kwame. Seven-year-old Kwame would have been in the first grade. So I was living in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Um, and I went to a school called Wilson Elementary. And my teacher was named Miss Virgil. And I remember at the end of the first grade year, she said, if you read 100 books during the summer, I will give you a T-shirt that said, I read 100 books during the summer. So I spent all summer at the library reading books. I read 100 books in like three weeks. I could not wait to get back to school. I got the T-shirt. It was a white T-shirt with red letters that said, I read 100 books this summer. And I wore that T-shirt every day for a week. (laughs) Seven-year-old Kwame loved books, was just in love with words. And you were surrounded with books in your home as well. Oh, yeah. My parents were writers and teachers of literature and English. And my father was a writer and they were, they owned the publishing company. So yeah, books were everywhere and, and they made it, you know, my mother made books fun and cool and interesting. And I think it probably wasn't until middle school, like age 12, when I started falling out of love with books because my father wanted me to read the dictionary and the encyclopedia and his dissertations from college. So, but seven-year-old Kwame loved books. And I'm, I'm I've read the book, so I know some of these answers, but <laughs> I'm, I'm getting the sense that words weren't simply your friends as you were growing up. A little bit older than seven, but, but they, they influenced so many different areas of your life. Oh, yeah. Words were punishment and reward. You know, words were, you know, we used to have these family meetings. My father called a family meeting like once every couple of weeks. We'd all sit in the living room on the floor. My parents would sit in the, on the couch and my father would pr- proceed to lecture us on all the things that we were doing wrong. And then like an hour into it, when we're just totally broken, then he'd proceed to tell us all the things that we were doing good and lift us up. And so we sort of forgot about all the pain that we experienced. But wor- those words were they, were, they were emotionally like painful in those family meetings. And then they were like emotionally uplifting. Words were really interesting in my house. Like that's how we, in particular, that's how my father loved. He loved through words. And words were also our sustenance. They paid the bills. My parents owned a publishing company. You know, I saw my mother designing book covers in her bedroom on her IBM computer with Ventura software. Like I saw my father writing his sermons and preaching every Sunday. Like words owned us and defined our existence, I think. And then you had the fun stuff. My mother sang songs and read stories to us. And you just got the whole gamut. And it's no wonder, you know, why I've written 39 books, Jason. I get it. Like, I feel like I was the Manchurian candidate of writing. My parent nurtured and created a writer. And to the point where my father wants royalty payments now. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> some of the books that you were reading, some of the books that you talk about when you were a child, it would just just seem incredible. And I wonder what your parents were thinking that would bring to you because there's a beautiful African proverb that you cite in your book. Um, would you like to would you like to read it or should I should I say it? Oh, if only I could remember it. What was it? <laughs> <laughs> what you help a child to love can be more important than what you help them to learn. And I stopped when I heard that. I, and I stopped and thought, and that is so beautiful. And it seemed to me that there was, your parents were giving you the love of books, the love of words at the same time as the content. Oh yeah, absolutely. It was, you know, it was like the way you find yourself, the way you be begin to know who you are is through literature. You know, it's, we're, we're going to immerse you in all things literary and, and bookish. And, and, and that was going to allow you to develop your imagination. And that's going to allow you to begin to understand what's possible for you in this world. And that's going to allow you to be able to travel without ever having to leave your house. And so by the time I began to travel the world, I think the first time I went to London, I was 16. And uh, I remember we were going to a book fair in London. I was going to work for my dad and I was going to be selling books behind a table at a trade show. I think it was the London Black Book Fair or something. And I was 16. I'm on British Airways. First time, first time out of the country. I mean, I've been to Puerto Rico, but that's not out of the country. I've been to like Bermuda, which I guess is out of the country. But this is a first time to Europe. 16 years old. I'm on British Airways. It's one of those double-decker planes. We're flying first class. I'm freaking out. Like, what is this? This is how you fly? It's so cool. It's the best thing ever. And then we get off the plane. And of course, we got 10 boxes of books that my dad checked because we're going to be selling books at this book fair. And I'm like, okay, well, where's our limousine? We just flew first class. Where's our limousine? He says, oh, no, we're not taking a limousine. I said, oh, we're going to take a taxi. I guess I can deal with that. No, we're not taking a taxi. We're, we're lugging 10 boxes of books on hand trucks on the underground. And I don't fathom that. We just flew first class across the Atlantic. And now we're on a, we're on a, a train. And so you got this love with, you know, being able to fly as a teenager first class. And then you got, you're on the underground and it's all an adventure. And then I'm at the book fair. I'm selling books. I meet this, this young lady. She's kind of cute. I'm reciting poetry to her. I go to a play in the West End called Beef No Chicken. I'm just living this life. And it's all because of words. So yeah, I learned to love words even when I was loathing the way sort of my father, you know, interjected them into my life. I just loved this notion of, of, of words and what they could do on the page and what they could do to a life. So, so yeah, I fell in love. It's a unique pleasure to read and love a book and then be able to talk immediately with the author. You were surrounded by books. So what was the first time that you had that experience that you could actually reach out and talk to the author? The first time I probably met an author, it would have been in my living room in Brooklyn, New York as a kid because my parents had a lot of writerly friends. So I don't know exactly who it was. It might have been Ernest Gregg, who was a children's book illustrator who wrote a book called And the Sun Guy Said That's Hip, which I loved. You know, it could have been Sonia Sanchez, a pretty famous poet. Um, it had so many writers that were in our circle. So I don't know who the first one was. I just remember it being a part of my life. You read a book, 
there's a chance you're going to meet the author. It just became a thing where it was it wasn't even it was no longer even like a surprise or it was no longer like a wow moment. It was just like, oh, this is my life. I meet authors. This is how it's supposed to be. Of course, that's not how it's supposed to be. Who who has that experience? And so I've always been excited to meet other authors. I've always been excited with that kinship, you know? And so that was one of the downfalls of the pandemic that you just don't get to be out and about and meet folks like that. You're like stuck in your house, which is, and you're stuck in your house buying stuff online, which, and of course for me, I was buying eyewear. And so how cool was it that the person I'm buying eyewear from has written a poetry book. So when you (laughs) sent me your book in the mail, Jason, that was a connection for me to my life, to my world. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we're still here. We still have that connection, even when we can't sort of touch and feel and, you know, have that sort of in person. So, yeah, I still remember that moment being pretty exciting for me as it was every author I've met. That is so lovely. Thank you. I'm going to tell you something. I read this book cover to cover and it's intimate. It's full of love. It's full of pain and joy and discovery. And I cried most of the way through it. it, it it's an incredible book. And, I, and I'm simply going to say that it should be on the menu for anybody who has children and for anybody that's been a child. It should be compulsory reading. This is just the most beautiful book. But it was a, a stylistic departure for you. And what took you in this new direction? Thank you for those kind words. It started as just a book of poems, which I'm really, you know, I know how to write a book of poetry. And, you know, I wrote it as I was writing it. I started seeing a connection between the poems. There was some sort of story narrative that was developing. And so I began to play with that. And, and then I wanted to, you know, I'd write a poem about a certain meal that I ate. And then I wanted to include the recipe. And, and then I wanted to give more context to to, to the food and the experience and the interaction. The one thing led to another. And before I knew it, I was just creating this, this sort of montage, this melange, this, this, this gumbo of, of writing. And it just, it happened. And I don't even know, I didn't plan to do it. It just sort of happened that way. And, you know, I wrote it while I was living in London. So I was able to just sort of focus on it and not have any distractions, not being on the road, not being on tour. But uh, yeah, I can't really say exactly how I got there. But once I realized what I was doing, then I said, oh, let me, let me just really, you know, play around with this and include letters and poems and recipes and remembrances. And you really bear your soul in this book. You, you paint a beautiful tableau. You talk about relationships your parents, with your daughters, with your teachers. Um, does that make you feel in any way vulnerable? Uh, <laughs> it made me feel vulnerable in every way. Like I've never been that vulnerable in my life. And, you know, I realized that it wasn't, it was no longer serving me to be closed off, to have a wall up. I thought I was an open book with my friends. Turns out, because, and because I'm a poet, because I write poetry, I bear my soul on the page. Turns out, all these years, where, when I thought I was open, I was really hiding behind these metaphors and these beautiful poems. And I had never like, really opened up and shared and been, and been forthcoming about 
whatever I was dealing with, especially with the people who I loved and who loved me. And so I, I realized that wasn't serving me anymore. It didn't feel good. And I, I was going through this sort of, I don't want to call it a midlife crisis. It's a, I would call it a midlife awakening. And my, you know, my mother passed, my marriage fell apart, and, and my oldest daughter and I had a really horrible disagreement that we still haven't really fully recovered from. And at the same time, my career is really taken off. I'm just selling a lot of books. And I'm thinking, well, why aren't I happy? And it's because of those things that are happening in my personal life that I'm not talking about and therefore not dealing with. And so writing this book was the first step in me saying, Kwame, vulnerability breeds authenticity. Authenticity brings you closer to having a better relationship with yourself and to the people you love. And it was scary, but I got to tell you, the results been phenomenal. Like, I'm like, why haven't I been open? Why haven't I been open and honest and forthcoming before? You know, why it took me so long? So yeah, I'm a lot vulnerable. I'm a lot of vulnerable, not a little. And, and it was difficult and I'm glad I did it. So many people would have gone the other way with the, with the difficulties that you describe, would have, would have closed up and gone inside and shut the door. Yeah, that's, yeah, absolutely. For fear, because of fear, you know, for, for various reasons. And, and that, that was my sort of default as well. But again, I didn't, I didn't want to be that person anymore. I wanted, I wanted to have some real authentic relationships. I wanted to feel better about who I was. And it was stressful not being, not being completely open and going to sleep at night and not being able to sleep, being stressed because you're keeping it all inside. And it's ironic that here is this person who, you know, was taught the beauty of words as a way of expressing yourself. But yet I wasn't expressing myself in my life. That brings me to another question that I want to ask you about words. When you hear words, what do you hear? Rhythms and sounds and leaps and bounds. I hear music. I listen for the, you know, the flow. As that's really important to me. I find that captivating when the, when, when the writing is really good, when the words are really flowing, that captivates me. It makes me interested in wanting to read what the or listen to what, what, what the writer, what the person is saying. So that's what I hear. And so how does that, I know, I know that often you'll write on, on subjects that um, might be political or provocative. And then there's the issue of censorship. And I know that, that you've had books banned before and responded beautifully to that. How do you feel about censorship? How do you feel about the rewriting of children's literature that was so much part of um, British culture in the, the last sort of year or so. I mean, there are going to be people who are afraid of the power of words because, again, words are powerful. They're transformative. And there are going to be people who are afraid of what words, what certain books can do, how they can enlighten and awaken readers. And I understand where that fear comes from. It's an unknown. It's, it's you're unsure. I think for me, I spend, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about other people's fear of books. I spend most of my time trying to figure out how to get books, in particular my books, into the hands of readers. So that's where my focus is. Now, certainly you, we can operate on different battlefields. There can be people who are fighting back, like, a, like a, the librarian in Lancaster, Louisiana, who went before the school board and, and, and and protested and demanded that they, you know, allow her students to read The Undefeated. 
a book that I had written. And that's, that's important. I think we can all do sort of, we find sort of our roles and our mission. And I think for my, for me, it's getting to these young people around, around the world who need to read these books and finding creative ways to do that and trying to reach their parents and finding sort of some common ground. There are things, you know, I don't want my daughter wearing, wearing crop tops. She's 14. She's going to wear them. But, you know, I don't want her having to watch a certain kind of movie. Like we all, as parents, we have our fears and we want to protect our kids. And so I get it. I understand that. And so I try to spend a lot of my time educating and informing folks on on why they shouldn't be afraid. And I do that by trying to get to the to the hearts and the ears of kids as it relates to my children's books. And if I can reach them and they can be an advocate and they can realize how these books make them feel, then perhaps, you know, I've done a little something. You're very active on that front, aren't you? You get out into schools and you get out to see people all the time and, and share your literature and allow them to meet you. Allow them to actually meet a real writer. That's important. Yeah, it's what we were talking about before. It's, you know, I know what it did for me and how cool it was and how normal it was. And so I want to make it normal for kids. I want them to be able to see, oh, I can have a writer in my school, in my classroom. This is just, this is a thing, you know, and I want to bring the words off the page, as it were, put them on the stage, make the words come alive. My goal is to not just get kids to want to read my books, but to get kids to want to read a book. Like that's exciting to me. Children's literacy is a, is a really, uh, Huge, huge subject. And, you know, I get, I get, my kids are older now, but um, I can't, don't really have too much control over what they do with their time, what they look at, what they read. But I want to see kids reading books, touching books, feeling books, um, instead of being on a, an iPhone or, a, a, or some other, some other screen. How do you feel about that? Or do you think that the, do you think that the literature, however it goes in, works? Or how do you feel about uh, screens against books? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm kind of a snob. You know, part of me wants to just say, no, it's just the books. It's the printed book. That's the only thing that matters. But I also know that kids learn differently these days and they have access to, you know, whole new technologies. And so, you know, there's a case to be made that reading is reading and let's get kids reading. Let's get kids reading and let's meet them where they are. And so if that means an ebook or some sort of interactive book or, you know, it's a comic, um, whatever, a graphic novel, whatever it is, let the, an audio book. I, I feel like there's different modes of, you know, different vehicles to deliver the the magical transformation that books offer. So let's find a way to get them to kids, um, however that is. Um, I'm open to that for sure. I think, you know, in in the UK, Book Trust is doing a great job of making sure books get into the hands of kids. And I think that's that's so crucial. And they're, they're, you know, they've got technologies that go along with the printed books. They've got podcasts or they've got videos. And, they, so they're, and so they're making sure that it's sort of a 360 approach to getting kids excited about books and literature. The Eyes Have It podcast is brought to you by award-winning eyewear designers, Kirk & Kirk. For more info, find us on Instagram at Kirk & Kirk or visit our website, kirkandkirk.com. Did you wear glasses as a child? No, I didn't wear glasses until maybe I was out of college, like in my 20s. And then, you know, I think the first pair of glasses, the 
first pair of real glasses I bought, a Japanese company. And it was, I was maybe 27 or 28. And it was like $180. And it was a lot of money. I never spent anything like that. But I saved up like two paychecks to pay for these glasses. In fact, I think I paid them on a layaway plan. I don't know if you all have layaway in the UK, but in America, you can like make payments on something before you pick it up. So <laughs> I had like three payments in order to be able to afford it. There were these green glasses. I want to say it was company. I can't remember the name of the company, but they were really thin. And I've got a big head. They were really thin, olive drab, army green glasses with specs on them. Man, they were the coolest glasses ever. That was the first time. And then I probably didn't, you know, maybe I bought like lens crafters or something after that, but I didn't really become excited about what eyewear could do as an art until 2015 when I won the Newbery Medal. And all of a sudden I went from not having a job to being like the most distinguished children's book author in America with, you know, pretty good book deals that were on the horizon. And I went to this place in Soho in New York City. I just happened upon them. And Jason, that was my first pair, like glasses where I spent some money and I look good. I'm not going to say the name of the place because that's our competition. We're not doing that. No, you can, you can say the name of the place because it's a beautiful store and I'm sure I know what it is, but please say it. Morgenthal and Fredericks. Yeah. Fantastic store. Yeah, Fantastic man. stores. Yeah. And those independent eyewear stores all around the world that make you feel the way that your face lit up just now when you were talking about that pair of glasses is exactly what I live for. It's amazing. So how do you feel when you put on the right pair of glasses? Oh, man. I, I'm six foot four. I feel when I'm strutting down the, the street in my Kirk and Kirks, I feel like I'm six feet eight. Like I'm <laughs> taller. Like I'm walking, like I'm walking on clouds. Like I'm the guy. Like, oh my, here comes Kwame. I can't tell you, you know, I was never a snazzy dresser, like for most of my life. Like I have a stylist now, so I look kind of cool, like, I guess. But the first time I would get sort of compliments on any part of my appearance was eyewear. It's like, oh my, Kwame, those are some cool glasses. So that feels good to have that sort of affirmation, you know? And then to have eyewear that no one else had, like I would, you know, very few people had. So I was in, uh, I was in Shanghai and it's 2016. I was in Shanghai. And by this time I had become an eyewear like fanatic, like, you know, I have 27 pair of eyewear. Half of them are Kirk and Kirk, but <laughs> I had become an eyewear like person. And so I was in, I was in, uh, Shanghai, China, and I went to a, a flea market, a market. And we're looking around the market and then there's this eye vendor, this eyewear vendor thinking, okay, cool. So I'm looking and I find a pair of frames that are like acetate, like, uh, the arms. And then there's, it's a white, there's a white frame on top of the lens. Like it's the white on top of the acetate or something. And it's just white. It's pure white. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. I'm going to get these. I try them on. They look great. I buy them. They're $10. Not only are they $10, but they do the prescription right there in like 15 <laughs> minutes. I don't know how they did it. I don't know, Jay. <laughs> I don't know how this business worked. I left there having spent like $21. And, I, and these frames for the next four years defined me. 
Like everyone, oh, that's the guy, that's Kwame. You ever seen Kwame's white frames? And there's pictures all over the, the internet of me in these frames. And then they cracked because they were kind of cheap. They cracked, of course. <laughs> and, uh, and I've never been able to sort of find them. But if I find anything, I did find something close to it at a place in, in, in London. Another place I won't mention unless you want me to. <laughs> You're very welcome to mention them. Tom Davies. Yeah, great. Um, great stuff. So, so, so they made a pair for me. It was close, but it wasn't the thing. And they, they, were, they were cool. But the thing about these frames, man, just like every frame I have, is they, they represent me. They extend me. You know, they, it's the way I see the world figuratively, literally. And metaphorically, it's the way the world sees me. So it's the first line of who is this cat Kwame Alexander? So, yeah, man, when I went to the Hollywood premiere of the crossover, like I was trying to figure out what frames to wear. And and I had a I had a I had some I had some black Kirk and Kirk's. Uh, is it, I don't know if it's Centera. You were wearing Horace from Centena. I was wearing these. OK, so I'm wearing these black. So I got black. But uh, I'm going to be on the red carpet and then I'm going to be inside. And so and I and these are these are going to be the pictures that are going to define me in Hollywood, the premiere of my TV series, The Crossover. So the 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 black ones that I had were um, transition. The red carpet was outdoors. I'm a writer. I'm not Hollywood, Hollywood yet. So I'm not really comfortable wearing sunglasses when I'm being interviewed. So. I went to Georgetown Opticians in Tyson's Galleria, told my guy, look, I need you to take the frames out of this, the, uh, the frost ones and put them in the black ones because the, the frost ones weren't transitioned and then put the black ones in the... Anyway, it's a long story. My point is I looked and I felt good and I felt like a million bucks and I felt like I'm a writer. And it's not like the glasses made me, but the glasses and me became, like the glasses became me. Oh, I don't know how to explain to me. I'm in love with glasses. <laughs> That's absolutely beautiful. And um, that makes me feel very special. I'm going to pass it on to Karen, who designed those frames. Oh, Probably with you in mind, Kwame. I got so many compliments that two of my friends who were helping me with the styling for that premiere, they asked me, they said, man, we really want some. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> what color do you want? They're like, we want black ones. I said, y'all want the same ones I got? Yep. So I ended up, you know, buying two pair for them. <laughs> and so I just, when we all go out, I'm sure we'll all wear them together. I, I want to get that picture. Kwame, <laughs> listen, I, I could listen to you for hours and hours and hours. And I'm going to ask something of you. And I, I'm hoping this is already in the pipeline. But um, I want to, I, I loved, loved, loved My Father's Cry at Night. It's really emotional. And I felt very attached, especially knowing you, but I felt very attached to all the characters. Um, your family sounds amazing, and I want to know how those relationships evolve. Would you, do, would you do one thing for me before you go? Would you please read the poem to us? Which one? Ten Reasons Why Fathers Cry at Night. So, yeah, um, after writing this book, my sisters and I have gotten way closer, which is interesting because one of them doesn't even like the book, but it brought us together in a way that we haven't been tight in 20 years. My brother and I have gotten closer. I've, I've had some more authentic relationships with friends in terms of just being open and honest. And it just felt good. It feels better. And my father and I, like we, 
we crossed over into this, no longer this sort of father son, but this man to man relationship. And it's just a beautiful thing. And he's, he's answering things. He's, he would never would have answered because I'm asking them and even apologize about something that <laughs> my father never says, I'm sorry. So, so, so it's just writing this book was a door opener for a lot of people in my family. And I think we all walked through it. Um, there's still work to be done. There's still bridges to cross. There's still hope um, in some areas that have brought some pain. You know, it's not a, it's not a evolve. It's not a, a, a concluding thing. It's, it's evolving. And it's, and you know, I am a, I'm not a grown man. I am a growing man as it were. Uh, the title piece for the book, Why Fathers Cry at Night, is a piece called Ten Reasons Why Fathers Cry at Night. And it's, it's a poem about a father trying to deal with his daughter who, who, who's, who's ready to date, who, who thinks she may be in love. And that's a hard thing for a father, as I'm sure you may know, to deal with. Ten Reasons Why Fathers Cry at Night. One, because teenagers don't like park swings or long walks anymore unless you're in the mall. Two, because holding her hand is forbidden and kisses are lethal. Three, because school was fine, her day was fine, and yes, she's fine, so why is she weeping? Four, because you want to help, but you can't read minds. Five, because she's in love and that's cute until you find his note asking her to prove it. Six, because she didn't prove it. Seven, because next week she's in love again and this time it's real. She says her heart is heavy. Eight, because she yearns to take long walks in the park with him. Nine, because you remember the myriad woes and wonders of spring desire. And ten, because with trepidation and thrill, you watch your teenage daughter who suddenly wants to swing all by herself. That's so beautiful. Thank you for reading that. Kwame Alexander, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for, um, for your time and for talking so honestly and candidly with us. Congratulations on your success on, on Disney Plus with Crossover uh, and this beautiful new book, which once again, everybody needs to read. It's amazing. Thank you for joining us today, Kwame Alexander. Thank you. When I hear Kwame talking, I hear about the power of creativity and how close it brings him to people, how it makes him consider and evolve his relationships with friends, with family, with people all around him and how he lives in the now. That creativity is clearly of, of absolute paramount importance to him. Kwame, thank you again. That was a, a fantastic opportunity to chat with a, a great, great author. If you're enjoying this series, please don't forget to follow The Eyes Have It to be notified of all future episodes. For more about us, go to kirkandkirk.com or follow us on Instagram at kirkandkirk. Thanks for your company. And until the next time, from me, Jason Kirk, it's goodbye. Goodbye.